Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. In today's episode, we continue our series on the pedagogies of punishment. We talked to John Tilson, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy of Education from Liverpool Hope University, and Laura Oxley, a PhD researcher in the Psychology and Education Research Centre at the Department of Education. We discussed their research, which looks at how the conventions of the rights of the child can be considered whether exclusions in school are morally legitimate. We critically consider the arguments for exclusion and conclude as to whether exclusion can be used in a morally legitimate way. Laura and John, welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Thank you for coming on. We're going to talk today about your work that you've done for the Pedagogies of Punishment project. And your work looked at children's moral rights and UK exclusions. So I wanted just to start by asking you, why do you think we're in a stage right now where we are at the highest rate of exclusions for a long time? Thank you very much for having us on today, Sarah. So exclusions in the UK have been rising since um, 2013. and I think there's a number of, of increasing pressures on schools that, that are leading this way. Um, so, for example, the pressure to achieve um, ever better academic results is one thing that, that is leading that rise. One example is um, a teacher that I was talking to who um, had been dealing with a class of challenging pupils that were in alternative division, and they achieved the best ever results for, for the GCSE subjects that they were teaching. They got 25% of those challenging students got a C grade or above, which is brilliant. Um, but the response from the Academy of Trust was, yeah, well done, that's great. Next year we want a higher percentage, we want to get higher. And so, so it's difficult, um, that's, that's one of the pressures. I think another pressure is on um, finances and resources. There's support services from external agencies, such as um, the local authority and from charities, that they're being put left, right and centre. And um, schools are struggling to afford to employ any sort of preventative services, such as family workers. So where issues may in the past have been dealt with at an earlier stage they're now being left to to escalate and therefore the behavior of the children is escalating and that's then leading to to higher exclusion rates. So your work concentrates on using the convention of the rights of the child to look at exclusion. I was wondering why and maybe this is an obvious question but why you felt that this was an important document to use to consider exclusions and whether it's morally legitimate. Well, the Convention on the Rights of the Child has been signed and ratified by every country with the exception of the United States. So that includes the United Kingdom. And in signing that document, the United Kingdom made a commitment to abiding by um, those uh, rights laid out in the Convention. And so we've got some kind of leverage to motivate compliance with these rights and with this convention. But more fundamentally than that, it seems that these are the right standards by which to judge um, schools' use of exclusions, because it articulates a full range of weighty interests like access to culture, freedom from harm, access to educational opportunities. It doesn't seem to leave out 
important things. And these uh, interests need to be protected and enabled and sometimes need to be traded off against each other. And by looking at these, we can think about um, the sorts of constraints there ought to be on punishments and also the sorts of goals there could be for the use of punishments. Yeah. What I find interesting about your work is that I think there probably is a subset of educators who are trying to challenge the rate of exclusions at the moment. And your work has taken a step back and thought, okay, what actually should be leading why we're doing this? Taking a look at the moral standpoint and and what the rights of the child might suggest we should do rather than just finding a practical solution to that. Is that your thinking behind it? Actually, if we can understand the morals behind some of the actions that we're taking, maybe schools will be more invested in challenging this? So my my, uh, sense is that it's very helpful to have a a single framework for policy analysis um, because that allows you to um, adjudicate between um, competing interests and competing intuitions that you might have about um, how to resolve practical problems. Um, so what the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child gives us, um, apart from the other things I've said, is a nice systematic framework that tries to give, tries to draw into one framework a, a range of di- seemingly disparate considerations. And it can help us to start to think systematically about how to weigh up competing interests and how to resolve a whole range of um, practical problems. So it provides something against which schools can judge their actions on to really give them a guide of whether they are acting morally and and legitimately. Considering the Convention of the Rights of the Child, that presents some central principles. And in your paper, you spoke about how these might be problematic for exclusions. Would you be able to talk through a little bit of how we can use these principles to maybe challenge or think about exclusions? So, so I think um, that if schools were following the principles of the CRC more closely, then um, it, it would suggest, as, as we've suggested in our paper, that there actually needs to be quite wide systemic reform um, in the way that exclusions are currently used in the UK. So, for example, um, there'd need to be a lot more emphasis on actually using exclusion only as a last resort when no other response would, would actually be appropriate um, and no other response would achieve that same aim. I think um, there'd also need to be um, much closer monitoring around um, the quality and the, the timeliness of alternative provision being put in place for children that are excluded from being within their mainstream school community. Um, And I think one of the other things that that we've highlighted in our paper is around the use of internal exclusion. So where a child is not actually um, excluded from the school physically, they're still able to come in, but they're isolated from their peers. And there's been quite a lot of work done around the um, impact that this potentially has on the mental health of the pupils that are subject to this. And there's not very clear guidance around how schools should be using this um, response. So I think the guidance around that would need to be much clearer as well. So in your paper, you explore some of the rationales for using exclusion as a punishment. Could you talk us through what you presented in the paper? Well, it's good to think about um, what the point of punishment is or what good things having punishments might protect. And two of the weighty interests identified in the Convention of the Rights of the Child are an interest in educational opportunities and an interest in being safe and free from harm. 
And you might think that punishment sometimes can protect those things. Um, the sorts of reasons people suggest that you should have punishments include these, that um, sometimes people just deserve to be punished. Um, now, we don't think that's true. It doesn't seem that um, it's just a good thing when bad actions result in pain. It seems that pain and deprivation are just bad things across the board and to be av avoided if at all possible. Sometimes they might be necessary to prevent greater harms, for instance, but they don't seem to be a good thing in and of themselves. So deterrence is another reason some people think that punishment is good. So if you set up some sanctions um, for um, doing bad things, uh, people might want to avoid those sanctions and so they don't do the bad thing. Um, and, and this ends up being good on the whole, but it looks like that you, you should only punish people for doing wrong if they could have controlled it, if they could have done otherwise. And it looks like in the case of children, um, often their, their liability for um, punishment is lowered because they lack responsibility for their actions. For instance, they're not uh, fully aware of what makes things wrong, why they're wrong, and not fully able to prevent themselves from doing wrong. Um, you might think that punishments are educative, that by punishing people, you make them realise things are wrong. Um, but we tend to think that you can make people aware that actions can be wrong without punishing them. For instance, you can tell them that they're wrong. Um, and you can have protracted conversations about it. Um, but a final reason you might think that things like punishment are OK is are roughly as protection. So it doesn't seem wrong. Um, for instance, if you have uh, someone who has an infectious disease to take them away from a population to prevent that disease from spreading to the population, even though the person who has the dis disease isn't responsible for, for doing the spreading the disease, but it's still right for having the disease in the first place. And it can be this way with children and the harm they might do to others. Um, so you might protect the wider community by removing the child from having opportunities to do harm to the wider community. And ultimately, we think that can be a justification for exclusion in some cases. Those ideas that you're talking through are what you hear from teachers all the time about why they do exclude or punish because they think that actually the child needs to learn where the boundaries are and to show the other children, I think, often that if they do something like that, they will get punished, that general deterrence argument. I would also question whether how excluding someone from, from the school community helps them to learn the values of that community and also um, creates in, within them a feeling of wanting to belong to that community. Um, I'd say that exclusion from school tends to um, create feelings of rejection and resentment, which then often escalate the behaviour of that child when they return to that school, um, because they kind of feel like, well, you've rejected me, so I'll reject you. Um, and I, th I think one of the when I'm talking with teachers, one of the things that we often talk about is if a child makes an, an academic mistake, then there is all sorts of support put in to try and help them, even if they're making that same mistake um, again and again then we continue to try and teach them different ways of learning that fact, of spelling that word, of, of trying to get that um, academic um, mistake corrected. Whereas when a child makes a behavioural mistake, the sort of the go-to response is that that child should be punished for that, rather than actually thinking about, well, how can we um, teach this child a different way of coping in this situation? Um, 
and also the the argument that exclusion gives a message to the community i think um i always argue back that actually we can give a message to a community in in many different ways exclusion isn't the only way that we can tell the school community that that child's actions were wrong if there's a restorative conversation had with that child then you know the rest of the students see that there is a response that child's behavior hasn't been ignored whereas if they're out of school for three days i don't I don't accept the argument that that gives a stronger message to the community that then it being dealt with in a different way. Um, I also feel that there's also the, with something like a restorative approach or a collaborative approach, there's more likely to be a sustainable solution come up with rather than that child coming to school after a three-day exclusion and they actually they haven't learned how to behave differently and the same behaviour is, is likely to reoccur. Yeah, it's like through want of not knowing what else to do they use an exclusion because they feel that's the only way to get across these things John was talking about like a moral education or to deter others from doing it but actually there is alternatives to that that they maybe can't aren't thinking about sometimes that you'll get a school where they are thinking about the alternatives but actually coming back to the um mentioned earlier about resources and funding they, they just don't have access to the services that they need to be able to provide those alternatives to a child yeah have to settle for the one thing that they can do and they can provide yeah it's quick it's easy it's um it's recognized by people as being a response and so with with your reflections on whether exclusion as a punishment can be thought of as legitimate did you find actions under which exclusion could be used in a morally considerate way one of the situations in which exclusion is going to be um I would accept exclusion as being a valid response is if there is a situation where somebody's safety is at risk if that child remains within that school community. Um, and that might not necessarily mean that the school have to um, permanently exclude that child. It might be that for a period of time that child may need to be removed from that school site um, if there's a threat to another person's safety. The, the thing that I would then also think is that the schools should consider whether there is some form of alternative provision that they could then put in place away from that school site. So they're still protecting the safety of, of everybody else within the school community, but they are, um, they are still also allowing that, that child to access their right to education. Um, I think in terms of exclusion as a way of um, sending a message, I think that there are other ways that that can be sent. I think exclusion as a way of stopping a child from disrupting other children's education. Um, again, there are other things that can put in place to educate that child in a different way so that they're not disrupting others' education. But when it comes to safety, if you've got a child who's threatening, whether it's another student or a member of staff, then there are situations where a school may need to have that power to physically have that child away from the school site. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how we can weigh up harm to the individual when they're excluded versus harm to the school community. If removing them from the school community will diminish their educational opportunities, that's a reason not to do it. And if keeping them in the school diminishes other people's educational opportunities, that's a reason to remove them. So which should you do? One way to think about this is about the adequacy of their education. If keeping that child in the school gives them access to an adequate education and doesn't diminish anyone else's education below a threshold of adequacy, we may not have a reason to remove them yet, even though removing them would improve everyone else's education. If by removing them, 
everyone else's education improved just a little bit, but it wasn't inadequate in the first place. And putting this child in a situation where they get an inadequate education. It looks like you shouldn't remove the child from the school because it visits upon them a disproportionate harm. Um, and that can be so even though removing the child from education produces more education in general. Um, but more education in general isn't the thing that matters. What matters is how it's distributed across individuals. And, and you want to ensure that everyone has an adequate education, not that more learning happens in general. And that's a really interesting point because I think sometimes the thinking can be that if you, you compartmentalise that one person that's being affected and the level of harm it's doing them because of the amount of other people that are being protected. If a school is a place where a child is going to be excluded, your paper thought a little bit about what they can do to protect against that unintended harm. Could you talk us through that? One thing is to tell people that what they did was wrong. If you're concerned that merely telling people that what they did was wrong isn't adequately communicative, what you can do is invest your voice with sincerity, with a degree of emotion. What you can do is draw attention to the effects of people's actions. Um, if it caused harm, you can ask the person to think about whether or not they would want that harm. Um, you might, if they're, you think they suffer from some degree of egocentrism, ask why it doesn't matter that other people should be harmed, but it does matter that they should be harmed. Um, and a conversation like that can um, diminish people's uh, sense of egocentrism, which is quite natural in younger children and um, which education can help them to grow out of. I, th I think to the child that's been excluded, if they were told, OK, so your punishment for that behaviour is that you're going to miss out on a day of education, there's few children that, that would actually think, oh, gosh, I'm going to miss a day's education. I'd better not do that again. Because um, they, they don't necessarily see it in that way. That might, that might be how, how we see it as, as adults um, and, and as people working within education. But um, for, for the adults, um, sometimes it, it can be seen as, oh, I, I get a day off school. But more often, I think that it's just that overwhelming feeling of rejection that the school are telling me not to come in because they don't want me there. What changes would you want to see in education policy as a result of the, the thoughts and reflections you had when you were writing this paper? I think I would want to see um, clearer guidance around um, how schools can use um, alternative approaches, so more emphasis on um, schools being um, seen to be using things like restorative approaches and collaborative problem solving rather than um, this, this emphasis on sanctions, what sanctions do you have in place when things go wrong? Um, and also I'd want to see um, policymakers looking at, um, at funding and looking at ways in which schools might be able to access services in a more creative way. If there isn't funding available, how can we ensure that there are these preventative services in place to, to stop behaviours escalating to the point where um, feel that exclusion is their only option? And are there things that you think with no change in policy that schools can go and do today to put in place to make sure they are acting in a morally legitimate way with exclusion? I think one thing that schools can do um, very easily is try to remove any stigmatisation surrounding exclusion. Try not to think of it as a penalty, as uh, a horror story, as something that happens to children when they're very naughty um, 
how they ought to think of it is just a thing that happens when um, children lower other children's ad educational opportunities below a threshold of adequacy, where their own education is not uh, lowered disproportionately in being so removed from that context. It's just a, a mechanism that sometimes necessarily has to kick in, um, but it's not something for anyone to feel ashamed about or be threatened to anyone to try and motivate better behaviour. Um, and in doing this, the decision has to be turning on the adequacy. And in making this decision, schools should be mindful of the degree of harm in educational losses that's visited on the student removed from education um, to ensure that they are not disproportionate to the uh, educational goods that the rest of the school community is protecting. And so I wanted to end just asking, through the writing of this paper, what conclusion have you come to about whether exclusions can, can be morally defended? So, so I, I feel that there are very few situations in which exclusion could be morally defended as being the, the only option available. Um, if we were in an ideal system um, where there was plenty of funding and resources available, um, then that those situations would reduce even further, but unfortunately we're not. So there are going to be situations where exclusion is something that's necessary to protect the, the wider school community. And as John said, it's about weighing up the, the gains and the losses by both that individual child and by, by the school community itself. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for your time today and for talking to me. I find it so thought-provoking talking to you about it, so thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. This was the last in our Pedagogies of Punishment series, but you can find more from the series where you get your podcasts, including an exploration of how traditional punishment disadvantages black girls, how you can use self-determination theory as an alternative to punishment, and what makes schools special and how this can apply to punishment. If you'd like to know more about what we discussed in today's episode, you can look at the podcast description. And if you enjoyed the episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum, and you can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.